All right, good morning, Redemption. So my wife, Holly, she loves to take her umbrella everywhere. And I mean everywhere. Uh, this is back in Oregon. This is because of the rain. But now here in Arizona, it's because of the sun. Right? She wants the protection. And I never bring an umbrella anywhere. And so when we get caught in a monsoon, I'm like, hey, can I you know, sneak up in there with you? And she's like, yeah, she's kind. So she lets me in. The problem is her umbrella was not made for that many people. And so I end up getting kind of soaked on my leg. And she gets some rain on her shoulder. And we both get a little soaked. And you add to this, our kids are scatterbrained. And so they're always going, man, we forgot our jackets. And so uh, Kali is kind, so she lets them all in. And, you know, then we're all kind of crowded under the five of us. And the reality is we all get a little bit of covering, but we also all get drenched, right? And we get home, we got to throw our clothes into the dryer, and, and we're just soaked. Now, the moral of this story is it's hard to fit more than one person under an umbrella, right? It's hard to fit more than one person under an umbrella, now, we are talking about gender today, gender and gender identity and the transgender conversation. And the reality is the transgender term, it's a big umbrella term that tries to cover a lot of different people uh, under it. But the reality is it speaks to there are a lot of different people's unique experiences and all that fit within that umbrella. I like the way that Mark Yarhouse puts it. He is a Christian psychologist who works a lot in the area of gender. And he says, if you've met one transgender person, then you've met one transgender person, right? Because people's experiences can be so unique, even though we use this broad category to kind of talk about it. Now, the reality is sometimes when you try and put so many people under an umbrella, uh, you can end up, some of the very people that you're trying to help can still end up getting soaked. And so what I want to try and do today is uh, break down this one big topic into kind of three different umbrellas or three smaller categories that I think can help us go, how can we love and serve and respond to people well? First, though, before we jump in, I think it's worth addressing, why are we even talking about this? Some of you might be going, man, should we even be having this conversation? And a couple thoughts here. You know, first would be, man, this has been described by many as the civil rights issue of our day. Uh, Time Magazine reports that 20% of millennials now identify as something other than male or female and straight. Uh, there have been culture wars over the last few years over things like bathroom bills and women's sports. The American Medical Association recently uh, advised or recommended the removal of male and female from driver's licenses. There have been controversies when it comes to youth over things like access to puberty blockers and parental rights when they disagree with maybe a decision that their child wants to make. And many Christians are confused over questions of things like pronouns, like if my friend or my neighbor or my coworker, if they change their pronouns, should, should I use those or not? And there's, there's confusion for many of us. And so I think this is an important topic for us to address. And our goal this morning is not to solve or address all those kind of questions or all of those things. Our goal is not to engage in a culture war. It is rather to equip us to live faithfully to Jesus. Now, uh, we're in the midst of a series called Countercultural Convictions, and every week we're looking at how do we live faithfully to Jesus in some topics, some areas where uh, what we believe our convictions can run counter to or against the grain of culture. And the question that I want to center us around this morning is the question of how do we love well? How do we love well? How do we love God well and our neighbors well? How do we love God well, living faithfully to Jesus and what God has called us to? And how do we love our neighbors well? Um, and for some of you, that can be your family and friends, people who you love where this is a part of their story. And you're going, man, how do I love them well and live faithfully to Jesus? 
Uh, others of you, I know there are some of you in this room, this is a part of your story. And I've been honored to hear from you and talk with you and know, know some of the journey that you've been on. And you're going, man, what does Jesus have to say about this? How does God's love speak to and um, impact this area of my life? So a few disclaimers uh, before we get started. Um, a, credit where credit is due. Uh, some of this today is inspired by, adapted a bit from a sermon by um, a guy named Andrew Wilson, a preacher in the UK, a pastor in the UK, uh, who I, I found really helpful, his message on this a while back. Um, B, I'm going to be reading today some statements from our membership packet, an article in there titled The Body, Sex, and Gender Identity that I and some others here at Redemption helped write. And so that can be a helpful resource if later you want to go back and what did he say or kind of what, you know, you can revisit that as a helpful resource. And C, I'm going to stick a little closer to my notes today just because there's a lot of ground we want to cover and uh, there's a lot of nuance that I want to try and speak to well. So that said, let's jump in and let's start with Jesus. Jesus is a good place to start. Amen. All right. We love Jesus. So let's go Matthew 19. If you have your Bible, we're going to turn to Matthew 19. Now, heads up, this is not some secret transgender passage in the New Testament, right? Uh, They did not have hormone blockers and sex reassignment surgery back in first century Palestine. But Jesus is talking here actually about divorce. It's a passage about divorce, and Jesus is responding to some questions he's getting there. But Jesus says some things in his response that I think can really help give us some wisdom and guidance for navigating this topic today. So let's jump in. Matthew 19, verse 1. Read. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, as such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those those to whom it is given. For... There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. All right, well, two things that I want to draw our attention to. Again, this is a passage on divorce, not explicitly on transgender, but there's two things that uh, Jesus says here that I think are significant. Uh, The first is that Jesus uh, affirms the male-female binary, that when he gets asked a question about divorce and the kind of sexual ethics and, and, and all, he goes back to the structure of creation. He goes back and he's quoting Genesis 1 and 2 here, and he's saying, have you not read? Like, don't you guys read your Bibles, right? Like, Jesus is going, have you not read God made the male and female? And Jesus is saying there is male and there is female. It's not, a bi- it's not a spectrum, it's a binary. It's an either or, that God has made these two and male and female are good and they are for the flourishing of our world. Great. 
But now, if we go on, uh, the second thing I want to draw attention to is that Jesus also acknowledges that there are some who are born eunuchs. We go a little later in verse 12, and Jesus starts talking about eunuchs. And eunuchs, for his first century audience, they would have heard that as uh, males who had been castrated. And so he just talks about three types of eunuchs here. He talks about those who were born eunuchs, and that would be those who were born without the full sexual anatomical kit that would be typical for their biological sex. And he talks about those who are made eunuchs by others. These would be those who had been castrated. Uh, they could have been servants or slaves, uh, often so that there wouldn't be concern that they'd sleep with one's wife or with uh, women in the household. And then Jesus talks about those who become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And here he's talking about those who take up celibacy to serve God and his kingdom, like Jesus. Jesus, you could say, became a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. He uh, never had sex, he never got married, never started a family, and he did so so he could serve the kingdom in a unique and particular way. So what we see here is that Jesus affirms both. A, God made them male and female, and that's good, part of God's good creation, the binary. And B, there are some who are born eunuchs. There are some who, through no fault of their own, are an exception to what it normally looks like to be male or female. Jesus affirms both. What I now want to do is try and apply this to three different groups of people in this conversation, three kind of smaller umbrellas. We can break the big umbrella down into three smaller umbrellas that I think can help us think through how can we love people well. Those three umbrellas or categories are first uh, the suffering, those who suffer from gender dysphoria or an intersex condition, uh, second, the confused. Those are who are confused, feeling like you need to meet a stereotype of masculinity or femininity in order to truly be male or female. And third, the revolutionary. I'm going to call the revolutionary. Those who feel like we need to dismantle the male and female binary and uh, minimize or reduce the sacred significance of our bodies. And so let's take these one at a time, and let's start with the suffering. We find is that Jesus brings compassion to the suffering. Jesus brings compassion to those who are suffering from gender dysphoria or an intersex condition. Now, when it comes to an intersex condition, this is a biological condition where someone has uh, atypical chromosomes or they have uh, a combination of some both male and female reproductive organs. Uh, an example would be Klinefelter syndrome, where someone has 47 chromosomes rather than the usual 46. And they have XX, which would be typical for a female, but also a Y chromosome, which would be typical for male. Another example would be complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, uh, where someone would be male, but their body doesn't respond to testosterone because of a genetic, genetic mutation. And so the body develops as female, but with some male reproductive anatomy. These are just a few examples. And the reality is most intersex persons don't identify as trans, but they're often used in this conversation by activists and all to uh, try and disrupt the male-female binary. And so it's worth addressing here. A question that commonly comes up is, are intersex conditions a third sex? I've had some of you here, some people here have asked me this question, are intersex conditions a third sex? Doesn't that kind of dismantle the notion that it's just male and female? And the answer is no. Uh, the intersex society of North America uh, itself rejects third sex as an accurate description. Uh, the reality is that what sex means or represents, it has to do with how our bodies are organized for sexual reproduction. Our sexed identity as male or female 
has to do with the role that we would play in the sexual union of male and female. And so uh, the reality is we are a sexually dimorphic species. There are two that it takes for reproduction. And intersex conditions combine some characteristics from both sexes. So they are uh, not a third sex, but a combination of characteristics from both, each of the two sexes. It's also worth recognizing that in well over 99% of intersex conditions, one's biological sex is still very clearly male or female. The binary still holds. It's in an extremely rare uh, number of cases where that's not the case. There's some extreme conditions. And the reality is for most people, many people, you can go their whole lives with an intersex condition and not even know they have it. Like you might have one and just not have been tested or whatever and not, not know you have it. Um, but there are some extremely uh, rare cases, but in which that is not the case. So the question though, do intersex conditions threaten the male-female binary? No. Uh, some in our culture want to say, hey, there are some exceptions, therefore God didn't create them male and female. Uh, but Jesus is comfortable affirming both God made them male and female, and there are some who are born eunuchs. Uh, God made the, the binary, it's a part of his good creation, and we live in a fallen world where things are not always the way they should be, and there are some exceptions to the general rule. <clears throat> And the reality is still that it takes only two sexes to sexually reproduce, right? So the binary still holds. All right, well, how do we respond to those with intersex conditions? With compassion, right? I believe our response should be, God loves you. I love you. Tell me what it's like to be you. There are some challenges you can imagine that someone with an intersex condition might face. It could be a painful experience. For some, this could mean infertility not being able to have children of their own. For others, this could raise questions about romance and am I gonna be able to find a partner and will sexual intimacy and things like that be possible? For others, this could raise questions around identity and kind of questions of who am I and maybe feeling like I don't fit the box. And if that is you, if you're a person here this morning with an intersex condition, I want you to know that God loves you. I love you. We love you. And I would love to know what it's like to be you. I don't just say that. If you ever wanted to meet, I would love to hear your story, to hear what your process and journey is like. And I would love for us to be a community that uh, is able to say, yes, we want to embrace and walk with you. All right, well, <clears throat> how about gender dysphoria? Jesus also brings compassion to those who suffer from gender dysphoria. Now, this is a psychological condition. So Intersex conditions are a biological condition. Gender dysphoria is a psychological condition where someone experiences significant incongruence right, or dissonance between their biological sex and their internal sense of self. Uh, some might explain this as feeling like a woman trapped in a man's body. And whatever you might think of that description and its accuracy, the thing that they're often trying to express is a real and painful distress, a painful condition of dissonance with their own body. This is a diagnosable condition in the DSM-5. That's the American Psychiatric Association's manual for diagnosing um, uh, different psychological conditions. And it can be extremely painful, involving severe emotional distress for many. Now, it can be helpful to hear people talk about this in their own words. And that's why this week on our Redemption Tempe podcast, our All of Life podcast, I'm going to be interviewing someone who had the privilege of getting to hear and know uh, their story a bit. And uh, she's someone who experiences gender, gender dysphoria. 
She doesn't identify as, as transgender because of some of the associations with that term, but she loves Jesus and is trying to walk faithfully to Jesus and uh, can share very honestly about that experience firsthand. And so I really encourage you to listen to the podcast this week because we want to humanize this conversation and not just have it be abstract. Right? Uh, in Preston Sprinkle's book, Embodied, which is our recommended resource out there in the lobby. Uh, he shares a few quotes from folks describing their own experience. One person describes it as an electric current through my body that causes my joints to ache, my stomach to turn, my hands to shake, and nausea in the most severe moments. Another person describes it as some creepy serum injected all over my body to create an odd, numb, yet painful feeling coursing through my blood vessels and seeping into my flesh. The rate of suicide attempts for those with gender dysphoria can be high. And so what should our response be as the body of Christ, as followers of Jesus, as people of God? We should respond with compassion. Our response should be one of compassion. I believe our response should be very similar to those with intersex conditions. Now, there are some complexities when it comes to uh, things like hormone therapy, sex reassignment surgery, some of the ethical questions around things like that. And we'll talk about those in a moment. But I believe God's first word is that, and our first word should be that God loves you. I love you. Tell me what it's like to be you. That we should be a community where we want to walk together with people who are experiencing this form of suffering. This is from our members' statement, our membership statement uh, in our members' packet. It reads, we recognize some of our members are born with an intersex condition, a biological reality, and others experience gender dysphoria, a psychological reality, and both of these are real and can be painful. If this is you, you are loved by God, created with dignity, value, and worth in an invaluable part of God's world and church. We want to walk with you, love you, and serve Jesus together as a church family where there are no second-class citizens, only image bearers who are members of Christ's body. Jesus brings compassion to those who are suffering, and so should we. And the reality is we need to own that sometimes Christians can say some hurtful things. Right? Can say things like, because God made them male and female, that it's all in your head or your feelings don't matter, or things like that can minimize, reduce the experience of distress and pain that people feel. And in a weird way, this is kind of the inverse logic that some of the activists or revolutionaries would use as well, right? Like, uh, if we're saying, like, well, God made the male and female, so no exceptions, some of the activists are saying, hey, there's some exceptions, so God didn't make the male and female. And Jesus confronts us both and goes, no, God made the male and female, and there are some whose experience doesn't fit the norm for what the normal experience for male and female, right? And the reality is, we live in a world where many things are not as they should be. It is a fallen, broken world characterized by suffering in all sorts of ways. Many of you know I have a biological condition. My, my, I'm blind in, in one eye, and that is one of my organs is not working the way it's supposed to. And uh, that is a biological condition, not a psychological condition. But a robust understanding of the fall says that us and our world, through no fault of our own at times, we have conditions, ways that we're broken biologically, psychologically, socially, and our world is marked by suffering. And yet the beauty and reality of the gospel is that Christ has entered into our suffering in order ultimately to redeem our bodies in his resurrection. And so there is hope even in the midst of our suffering, our suffering world. Jesus brings compassion to a suffering world, and we should too. 
Okay, well, let's move to our second umbrella or second category here. And uh, that would be the confused. And going to the confused, Jesus brings clarity. And what do I mean by confused? I mean, uh, those who think that how masculine or feminine you are determines whether or not you are truly male or female. It's just not true. Uh, Increasingly, many who identify as trans don't have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Uh, The DSM-5, again, that's the American Psychiatric Association's uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychological Conditions, uh, puts the numbers extremely low, what they estimate how many people have uh, gender dysphoria, as we talked about earlier, extremely low at approximately 0.005 to 0.002% of the population. And as you're likely aware, there are many increasingly today um, who are identifying as as trans that that's not um, the case. Those who identify today, it's much higher, especially among younger generations. And it's often not because of such extreme distress as rather an internal sense that they don't fit the typical box of what it means to be male or female. There is, I would suggest today, some category confusion. One of the first things we need to do is define our categories, define our terms. What do we mean by sex and gender? It may be helpful to think of sex as male and female uh, and gender as masculinity and femininity. Now, that may be a little simplistic, but we'll get a little more detailed here in a moment here. So we ask, what is sex? What are male and female? And when Jesus quotes Genesis 1 and he says, God created them male or female, male and female, he's quoting Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 gives us a, Powerful picture of what it means to be male or female, highlighting three things. Uh, The first would be that our sex is male or female. It's a biological category, a procreative category, and an iconic category. So it's a biological category, meaning it has to do with our bodies. Genesis 1 is talking about God's creation of bodies. God is creating the sun and the moon and the stars and the trees and the rivers and the mountains. And God is creating um, the physical created world. Genesis 1 has not yet moved to kind of the internal psychological uh, experience of the interior life of our soul. That comes later. But Genesis 1 is focused on our bodily, physical, created realities of our world. And God says our bodies are good by him. Second, male and female are procreative categories uh, that it's connected in the passage where it says God created mankind in his image and then male and female, he created them. And immediately after the introduction of male and female, God then blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, right? And so there's this picture of God creating humanity and then what you could call him splitting humanity, so to speak, into male and female. And that what this male and female allows is the uh, fulfillment of this blessing to be fruitful and multiply and reproduce and fill the earth. Male and female are procreative categories. This is true not just biblically, but scientifically, right? Like when a farmer goes out on the farm and they look at their male sheep and female sheep or male pigs or female pigs, what they're describing is not the animal's internal sense of self, right? But they're describing the role that, uh, that animal's uh, sex plays in its sexual reproduction, the species. This is how... Uh, Science has understood and talked about this, that sex has to do with how the body is organized for sexual reproduction. Then the third and final thing we see in Genesis 1 is that male and female are iconic. They're connected to the image of God. They first show up in this three-line poem, uh, the image of God poem, that God created humanity, mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. They're wrapped up going, there is something sacred in our bodies that's designed to reflect something of who God is into the world. This means that 
We need both women and men together to get an accurate reflection and depiction of the heart of God and his creation. Okay, so that's sex, male and female, right? Now let's move to gender. What, are, what is gender? What is masculinity and femininity? And this is generally you stated, talk more about how we experience ourselves as male and female and how we express ourselves as male and female. Now, uh, properly understood, your gender still fits within your biological sex. You can see this within the root of the words itself, right? Like the root of the word gender, gen, means to give birth to or produce. It's the same root in words that we have like genitals or generate or generation, which makes sense, right? Like when the two genders combine their genitals, they are able to generate the next generation. There's a logic in this, right? So, so gender fits within your biological sex in that sense. And yet the way that it's used today is described psychologically how we experience ourselves as male or female and uh, experientially, socially, how we express ourselves as male or female. Uh, Things like dress and rules and social expectations. And historically, it is true that how you express yourself as male or female can vary across cultures, right? Like 100 years ago in America, uh, pink was considered a boy's color and blue was considered a girl's color. So you got to go back to Target and return those baby shower gifts, right? Uh, when I was a kid growing up, one of my heroes was a man who liked to wear a dress and put on makeup and keep his hair back in braids. His name was William Wallace, right, from Bury Park, right? There are realities that over time and culture and history that some of the uh, cultural associations and expectations for how a male and female get expressed can differ, but... Here's the thing I want to focus on here is that you don't need to meet a gender stereotype in order to truly be male or female. That this is a confusion of categories. To say that I'm more or less masculine or feminine doesn't change the reality of being male or female. Your biological sex that's sacred and given by God, rooted in your body. When it comes to gender, the Bible resists gender stereotypes. This is from our membership packet again. The member statement reads, King David was a real man when he wrote poetry and played the harp. Deborah was a real woman when she led Israel into war. Jesus wept over Jerusalem like a mother hen, Matthew 23, 31. The woman of Proverbs 31 buys property, runs a business, has a strong back, and provides for her family. This is getting at is that the Bible resists gender stereotypes. That's true. The Bible affirms what I call gender archetypes, that there are some things that are more generally true of men than women and some things that are more generally true of women than men. It would be naive to ignore this, but these are not hard and fast rules like a rigid straitjacket, but rather there's a lot of flexibility. Tuesday night, uh, our event that's coming up this Tuesday night, it's going to look a lot more in depth at this, so I encourage you to check that out. But what this means is that you don't need to be a stereotype, right? Like, You can be a woman who likes Monday night football while eating a porterhouse steak after bench pressing 300 pounds, and guess what? You're still a woman, right? You can be a guy who likes pastel colors and does ballet and home decor and enjoys long conversations over tea, and guess what? You're still a guy. Historically, we just call this having a personality, right? The reality is, if you feel a little out of the box, then you are in good company here. I don't know if you've noticed, but I am not exactly the epitome of masculinity, right? Like (laughs) Dwayne The Rock Johnson or whatever. 
And if you consider our staff, if you were to think of which of our staff is probably most likely to cry on command, be Will Vakurovich, right? <laughs> <laughs> which of our staff is most likely to maybe to be the most assertive, direct, and blunt with you? Jackie Blytho. <laughs> you know, Crawford, one of my best friends in the world, is a male hairdresser who wears mom jeans, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you feel a bit out of the box, you are in good company here, the family of God. <laughs> now, I believe the confusion today has to do with the sense of like, man, if I'm less masculine or feminine, then I must not truly be male or female. And this is a confusion of categories. You can be a lot of different ways. There's a great diversity in how we express ourselves in that sense. Um, and it doesn't impact whether you're truly male or female. Uh, this is again from our membership statement. It says, while our conviction is that gender should be understood within rather than in addition to one's biological sex, there's great flexibility in how one expresses their gender so long as one is not deliberately seeking to identify or present themselves in opposition to their bodily sex. So we identify with our sex, but there's flexibility in how we express it. And I want to recognize there are some of you who grew up feeling like you didn't fit. And the stereotypes can be funny right now, but you grew up with this and it's like, man, I don't fit in the box. Like, I come bring home the trophy and dad doesn't think I'm a real, you know, whatever the expectations were, I love out playing out in the trees and hiking, whatever, and am I really broke? And we also need to own and acknowledge that sometimes as churches, we have reinforced some unhealthy stereotypes, right? That have further added to that pain and all. And what I want you to hear today is that Jesus brings clarity. Jesus brings clarity and says, you don't need to meet a stereotype of masculinity or femininity in order to truly be a man or a woman, a daughter or a son of God. Okay. So we have seen that Jesus brings compassion for the suffering. We've seen that Jesus brings clarity for the confused. And the third category, kind of umbrella breakdown I want us to look at, is that for the revolutionary. That to the revolutionary, Jesus brings confrontation. Right? Let me explain what I mean by revolutionary. I'm referring to those uh, many today in the media, academics, the Twitterati, and popular ideologues, right? who want to dismantle the male-female binary as something inherently oppressive or merely socially constructed and want to minimize the sacred significance of our bodies. And I believe this is an arena in which we need to be able to stand firm and tell the emperor he's wearing no clothes on this one. Right? Jesus says, no, male and female are sacred. They're a gift of God. They have ethical significance for how we live and that they work together, male and female work together for the flourishing of our world. Our bodies are sacred. You and I, we don't just have bodies, we are bodies. This is from our member's statement again. <clears throat> our bodies are sacred. We're not just persons who have bodies, we are bodies. Body and soul share an integral union, mutually integral to our person. We are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. What that's saying is that you are your body. Like if someone touches your face, they touch you. That body and soul go together, created by God in union together. Our body is not just an avatar that we can kind of switch or change at will. Your body is not just an appendage or a tool that's attached to your soul. 
Rather, your body is a sacred part of you. It's a constitutive part of your identity. It's a part of what makes you you. The member statement goes on. It says this, the body's sexed nature as male or female is not only significant, but bound up with our creation in the image of God. Christ's incarnation and resurrection affirm the body's foundational significance. It's saying the body is massively important. It's related to the image of God in Genesis 1, as we saw, and, and that Christ in his incarnation, he takes on a body. He takes on flesh, takes on a body. He becomes human in order to redeem our bodies. And through his death, he takes on the suffering of our bodies and the brokenness of our world in order that through his resurrection, not to whisk our souls away into a bodiless future, but rather to redeem and reconcile and restore creation and our embodied realities to himself. Our bodies are massively important. They are sacred. God cares about our bodies because he loves us. God cares about your body because he loves you. And here's the thing. The revolutionary thinks that they're loving. They feel like they are loving their neighbor. But historically, some who have thought they were loving their neighbor were actually harming them because of an ideology that they had helped become captive to. And so I want to ask three questions. There are three questions I want to ask. When it comes to things like hormone therapy, sex reassignment surgery, uh, if you've already had those or done those, that's, that's one thing. God's grace is big, and we can talk about that. Uh, but if you're considering these things, or if you're wrapped up in an ideology that is uh, intentionally kind of promoting or seeing this um, as, as a great thing, there are three questions that I want to ask for the revolutionary ideology of our day. The first question is this, uh, can you really separate your body from your identity? Can you really separate your body from your identity? If we think of race, for example, many of us will remember uh, Rachel Dolezal a few years back. She identified as black. She was the local head of the NAACP in Spokane, Washington. And there was a huge public outcry when it was discovered that she was actually biologically white, that she had been, uh, she was, she had been born and raised by white parents. Um, and there was this outcry, particularly from the black community, that felt that she had appropriated their culture for her own when it was not actually who she was. She said, and trying to justify or explain it, she said, I don't know spiritually and metaphysically how this goes, but I do know that from my earliest memories, I have awareness and connection with the black experience and that's never left me. She was saying, regardless of my body, whatever else, I have this internal sense, this is me. And yet, uh, according to, particularly from the black community and popular opinion, the read was that she couldn't fully separate or truly separate her body from her identity, as hard as she tried. Another example, if we think of age, this is um, Emil Rottelbond. He's a Dutch TV personality and politician, and he fought a legal battle to try and have his uh, age legally reduced by 20 years, from 69 to 49. And he said it was because he had been facing discrimination in a number of social contexts, for example, like dating apps. He's like, I'm on Tinder, and the girls would date me if they thought I was 49, but since I'm 69, they don't even look at my profile. But the reality is, he says, my doctor tells me I've got to, yeah, yeah, I'm young and healthy, and, and I feel like I'm 20 years younger, so why should I not be able to identify as 20 years younger? <laughs> he lost the court case, uh, but the court... <laughs> but his... Reasoning, he was kind of going, the courts were essentially going, it's going to cause too many social problems or ramifications if we let this happen. But uh, he was going, well, we live in a time where I can change my name, I can change my gender, why can't I change my age? 
Uh, then there's the trans-species movement. This is a more fringe movement. Uh, some who will identify as dogs or deer or other species uh, and express themselves that way. And so this is a former banker born in Phoenix who identifies as a dragon and has had 60, over $60,000 in surgery uh, to get a forked tongue, a horn sewn into his head, uh, the removal of much of uh, their ears and nose. And my point in these examples is not to make fun of or to say that they're exactly the same thing, but it is to ask, can you truly separate your identity from your body? Can you truly separate your identity from your body? I would submit to you that it is not loving to tell Rachel Dolezal that she's black or to tell Emil Rotteman that he's 49 or to tell the former banker that they're a dragon. And if not, why is it different than to tell a biological male that they're a female? Your body constitutes your identity in important ways. We're talking about ethnicity, age, gender. Uh, these are important to who you are. They're not everything, but they're not nothing. Okay, the second question <clears throat> is, if gender dysphoria is a psychological condition in the mind, should the goal be to align the body to the mind or the mind to the body? Because in many similar scenarios, uh, we would say that it is actually more harmful rather than loving to try and align the body to the mind. If you consider anorexia, uh, anorexia is an eating disorder uh, characterized by pathological fear of becoming fat, a distorted body image, excessive dieting, and emaciation. And it's a psychological condition where the problem is rooted in the mind, not in the body. And you would never tell your friend in this case, like, you would never say, yeah, you're overweight, like, let me help you binge and purge, right? That would not be considered loving. Rather, the goal would be to empathize with the person and to seek to walk with them and help them live within their body as well and as healthily as they can. Or consider body integrity identity disorder, another psychological condition where someone desires the amputation of healthy limbs. There's kind of a sense of like this uh, arm or this leg shouldn't be there and there's just a desire to self-amputate, be a painful condition. And medicine has a problem, though, with treating this historically because the goal of medicine is do no harm, right? Like one of the foundational principles for medicine was do no harm, which means the goal is um, to not to harm healthy organs or body parts, but to try and repair or bring wholeness or help improve the quality of life for areas of the body where uh, things are broken or not working properly. So in similar situations with other psychological conditions, we would say it's unloving it's even harmful to try and align the body to the mind. That yes, the goal would be to empathize and to try and improve quality of life, but not to harm truly healthy body parts. Okay, the third question and final one here around whether it's loving is this. Does it work? Does it work? Not only in the sense that, um, you know, hormones and surgery can't change XX and XY, your chromosomes, and, uh, or alter some of the foundational realities of your body's sex nature that are established from birth. So uh, it's not true that simply trans women are women in the same way as biological women, as sometimes we'll hear today. But I mean this question, does it work on a deeper level? I'm going, do hormones and surgery really solve the mental unrest long term? Because revolutionaries are making claims that it leads to more flourishing, but does it? Uh, the best studies say no. There are uh, some studies you'll see floating around out there that are really ideologically driven and use really bad methodological practices. 
But the best studies are done with large population sizes over more than 10 years and with follow-up rather than just self-selecting. And what these studies have found is that mental unrest and unhappiness continue for the majority of people. That the suicide rate uh, for population that's fully transitioned is still 19 times higher in the long run than the average population. That's not saying that no people would say it's been helpful, but it is saying that it's, a, there's a, it's confronting the myth today that it's a magic cure. Dr. Paul McHugh is the University Distinguished Service Professor of Psychiatry at John Hopkins University School of Medicine. He was a leading figure uh, for a long time in developing medical practices for the transgender community. Um, And he changed course in his career. And he explained why. He says this, he says, the most thorough follow-up of sex reassigned people extending over 30 years conducted in Sweden where the culture is strongly supportive of the transgender documents their lifelong mental unrest. 10 to 15 years after surgical reassignment, the suicide rate of those who had undergone sex reassignment surgery rose to 20 times that of comparable peers. Now, why is that? He explains, transgendered men do not become women, nor do transgendered women become men. All become feminized men or masculinized women. Counterfeits are impersonators of the sex with which they identify. And that lies their problematic future. When the tumult and shouting dies, it proves not easy nor wise to live in a counterfeit sexual garb. The revolutionary ideology is not loving. It's meant to you that it is not loving because it can't truly separate the body from one's identity. And aligning the body to the mind doesn't get at the root of the problem it's seeking to address. And it doesn't really work the way that it's often claimed to. And so... In closing, we come back to the question we started with. How do we love well? The people of God, how do we love well? How do we love our neighbors well? Well, I believe that we do what Jesus does. We bring compassion to the suffering. For those who are suffering with gender dysphoria or an intersex condition, we bring compassion and sacrificial love and wanting to walk with and embrace as a part of our church family and as our neighbors and friends. We bring Not only that, we bring clarity to the confused. We bring clarity going, you don't need to meet a stereotype of masculinity or femininity in order to truly be male or female, man or woman. And finally, we bring humble confrontation to the revolutionary. Uh, Not in like a hostile culture war sense, but just in the sense of being able to humbly but boldly affirm that yes, our bodies are sacred and there are unintended consequences to what we're unleashing but affirming the sacredness of the body is a gift from God. It's how do we love our neighbors? Well, now the question, how do we love God well? Uh, This is from our member's statement as well. We land saying, followers of Jesus ought to identify in accordance with our bodily sex. That's referring to things like pronouns, things like that. We identify with our bodily sex. Uh, Not present ourselves in ways that will intentionally introduce confusion as to our identity as male or female. That's talking about like, dress and expression, it's, there's a lot of flexibility with saying we're not intentionally trying to present ourselves as the opposite sex. And not seek to alter our body's sex through hormone therapy or sex reassignment surgery. This is for us as followers of Jesus. We can trust God to deal with the world at large. Um, that's his territory. But as followers of Jesus, as a church community, we want to honor God with our bodies 
and love our neighbors well. So as we come to the table this morning, we come to Jesus who took on a body to redeem our body. That Jesus, who this bread represents his body given for us and this wine, his blood shed for us. And Jesus, through the fullness of his story in his incarnation, he took on a body for our redemption. In the cross, he suffered and bore the suffering and brokenness of our bodies and our world. In his resurrection, he is risen to ultimately restore and heal and make whole not only our bodies, but all creation. We come today to Jesus who allowed his body to be broken, put us ultimately back together. And Jesus entered into our suffering. On the cross, he essentially became like an umbrella, right? Big enough for all humanity to fit it. I said earlier, it's hard to fit more than one person under an umbrella, but that's not true when it comes to Jesus because as his arms were outstretched wide, he became a refuge big enough for all to come and find shelter and rest in, refuge in. And the reality is these themes that we're talking about today, they should hit home in some way or another close to all of us, right? Because all of us have experienced what it's like to feel that dissonance between who Christ says you are and how you feel inside. In Christ, it says you are the righteousness of God. And yet we come to this table this morning, some of us feeling like a broken mess. In Christ, it says we are a new creation, and yet some of us come still feeling the weight of the old world and the suffering of our world dragging and weighing against us in significant ways. And even though we can feel like aliens and outsiders in Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. So as we come to the table this morning, we entrust ourselves to Christ, we cling to him, bringing our suffering, bringing all, all brokenness, whatever we have to bring and clinging to him and the hope for ultimately the resurrection of our body as people. Would you join me in prayer? Hmm. Jesus, we thank you, God. We know this is a loaded conversation that is uh, real for so many people, our family, our friends, our neighbors, even for some of us in this room. So, Holy Spirit, look to you and ask now, God, that you would minister to us as your people. Lord, we do want to bring, and to be a community that follows you, God. We want to bring compassion for the suffering, Lord. Would you... Open our hearts, God, if there are any of us who have been kind of hardened, who have seen this as just kind of a culture war issue and maybe been hardened against the real pain and suffering of neighbors, family, or friends. God, would you break our hearts open, soften us with compassion and love. And God, I pray for any who have felt confused, maybe growing up feeling like they didn't fit the box, or maybe even now today, God, would you set people free by your spirit, God, from any of the stereotypes they felt they needed to live under? And God, would they find freedom to live as daughters and sons of God with the full diversity of expression of what that means, the unique personalities, ways you've wired that you've given us. And finally, Jesus, we want to be a community that brings humble confrontation to the revolutionaries of our world and ideology. God, we want to be able to affirm that, yes, our bodies are sacred. They're great gifts given by you and they matter. God, you love our bodies because you love us. And so God, now 
we submit our bodies back to you and we respond with our voices, with our hands, be with our hearts, God. We lift you high and worship Jesus. Amen.